Doctors In podcast, where we talk about health topics with healthcare students and their relevance to all of us. I am Linda Pang. And I'm Darby Modernock. And we are first-year students at the University of Iowa. Uh, we are recording this podcast to provide free information on well-being and health and highlight many of the resources available to students at the university. Today, our guest is Nathan Spitz, a fourth-year medical student at the Carver College of Medicine. I should say soon-to-be doctor in like a couple days. <laughs> he minus two days. It is That's coming so, in so, so quick. <laughs> Nathan completed his undergraduate at the University of Iowa in psychology, and he is heading to Cornell in New York City for psychiatry training after graduation in two days, and is here today to discuss ketamine and its use as a psychiatric medication. Welcome, Nathan, and thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you both for having me and for that warm introduction. Yes, graduation is quite literally in less than two days, um, and I can't think of a better way to like wrap up my medical school career than talking about something like ketamine. So what inspired you to write on this topic? Yeah, I would say there's probably a couple of different reasons. Uh, I would put them maybe into two different buckets, maybe one professional interest and maybe one more kind of like personal. Um, on a professional note, um, something that I really kind of like prompted me to want to write about this was uh, listening to the book, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Um, so he's like a journalist, author, et cetera. And this book was um, kind of an ode to psychedelics and kind of its kind of journey um, throughout the last several thousand years and bringing us to here we are today. Um, and what prompted me to want to write about this was his portion on talking about the stigmatization of medications, substances, compounds like psychedelics, like ketamine, um, and really the harm that has been done by this stigmatization. And I think there was one little crux in there. Where he talked about kind of like the failure of researchers or clinicians or psychiatrists or kind of healthcare workers to be a voice of reason and a voice of science and data um, and research on these compounds and that kind of failure on our healthcare worker part contributing to this stigmatization um, how that stigmatization, you know, led to or contributed to the war on drugs, um, like the 1970s Controlled Substance Act, et cetera, that has just like imprisoned thousands of people, especially BIPOC uh, people for the use of drugs. It's shut down research on uh, compounds like ketamine um, or other psychedelics for decades. Um, and so I think that there's a real need for the healthcare system, for researchers, clinicians, et cetera, the like, to really start to advocate and stand up and kind of reclaim the narrative on how substances like ketamine really have shifted, um, at least in psychiatry, have really like shifted our ability to treat folks who really have been like suffering, um, whether it's in isolation or suffering from a lack of available treatments for years. Um, on a kind of like a personal note, uh, like you mentioned, I studied psychology at the University of Iowa and I remember you know, we, in one of my abnormal psychology classes, we had to write like a 10 page research paper. And this was before I would say ketamine was on podcasts like Andrew Huberman or Joe Rogan or other kind of more like a pop science type of podcast like that. Um, and I just became enamored. And this was like another kind of like sign that I wanted to go into psychiatry and digging into kind of like the mechanism of action of how like the what and I had used ketamine. So I worked um, in a basic neuroscience lab with rats and I'd used ketamine as like an anesthesia. Um, and I was like, what? Like this medication can like reduce or send, you know, cause a remission of somebody's depression in like 24 hours. Like that's so 
wild and so different from kind of like traditional antidepressants or traditional treatments. Um, and then also like while taking biochemistry in undergrad, diving into like this wild like mechanisms of action and kind of combining, you know, like the history and stigmatization, on, like the war on drugs, the like novel mechanisms of actions, and then like the potential that a drug like ketamine has to really change medicine to change psychiatry um i think all is just like so fascinating and again something that like prompted me to want to write this piece yeah so for those who might not know could you explain a little bit like what ketamine is and how it works yeah so ketamine maybe to like a backup ketamine was created i guess maybe i'll answer like a couple questions in the same time maybe tell like a story of of ketamine and like i think maybe that might help explain how it works um so back in the 1960s there was a i mean so this is a i'll try and like use abbreviations and say out the words as well um one of the like anesthetics that people used was pcp or fencyclidine um this is like commonly known as like angel dust or pixie dust as like a recreational street drug um but this was used as an anesthetic but it would cause these really long like protracted like deliriums in people after they woke up and so this kind of like prompted researchers to want to find like a better drug than pcp for anesthesia they wanted one that caused like less delirium and so they had discovered ketamine. Um, and I think what was novel about ketamine was it was called like a dissociative anesthetic. Um, so it would provide that anesthesia, that lack of pain sensation. So if people received like a noxious stimuli, they wouldn't like respond to it. Um, but people weren't entirely unconscious. They would be in this kind of like dissociative state. And it was also great in anesthesia because ketamine, unlike some of the other more commonly used ones like propofol or nitrous oxide or things like that. Um, ketamine help didn't have as much respiratory depression. Um, and it also could sometimes like raise people's blood pressures or heart rates. Um, and so this was like right in kind of the Vietnam War era. And um, so 1970, ketamine was FDA approved as an anesthetic, which was amazing for its use in Vietnam if people were like injured by a gunshot or a bomb or something like that. And they may have been like hypotensive or at low blood pressure if they're bleeding out. Um, so ketamine started uh, as an anesthetic um, after the Vietnam War, after people kind of had experienced that dissociative um, experience. And as it had started to reach kind of mainstream in the U.S., then in like the 80s or 90s, um, it started to be abused as a recreational drug um, and then kind of like spread across the world. Um, and then I would say it was maybe like the mid nineties was some of the first times that researchers started to look at ketamine, not just as an anesthetic, um, but to see its potential in like its use in psychiatry, um, to continue kind of like this story. Um, there's like a couple different like competing hypotheses on how we ended up with like our first clinical trial, um, for ketamine to treat depression. Um, but one was that, as I had mentioned earlier, like ketamine is an anesthetic and it's used in anesthesia for animals um, if they're undergoing um, like surgical procedures. I, mean, I don't know if you saw like there's a bunch of memes of like it's a horse tranquilizer. That was kind of like the like tagline as ketamine started to be introduced into psychiatry uh, or into the mental health field. 
Um, but researchers had noticed that when they gave uh, rodents ketamine um, to undergo, maybe it was for, you know, to receive like implants for drug delivery or something like that, um, that when rodents were doing a forced swim test, um, that they swam longer. Um, and so to give a little more background, the forced swim test is kind of a depression model for animals. So they would just take big old tubes of water that mice or rats can't swim out of, and they just dump them in there and see how long um, these rodents will like paddle for. And the kind of analog is that if mice or rats stopped swimming earlier, that it was kind of a learned helplessness or kind of a model of depression in in rats or mice. And so in the 90s, researchers started to notice like, oh, when we use ketamine, these mice or rats are swimming um, in these tubes longer. Um, at the same time, uh, basic neuroscientists had elucidated that when we give ketamine, um, which works as an NMDA receptor antagonist, um, so the kind of acronym of this, like N-methyl-D-aspartate um, receptor antagonist, that it increased the amount of glutamate in a person's brain, um, and glutamate is the kind of main excitatory neurotransmitter um, in our nerve, central nervous system, and kind of building on those discoveries they noticed that with that excess glutamate or that increased excitatory um, neurotransmitter that they were also seeing increased um, in molecule increases in molecules like or second messengers this is getting into the real kind of biochemistry things um, in a molecule called mTOR which is like a really big like growth uh, promoting molecule um, they saw that it increased protein synthesis and synaptogenesis they saw that ketamine also increases the amount of BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor um, on like this was started in kind of like in vivo in like petri dishes and then in rodents. Um, and then also in the 90s, a lot of this was happening at Yale. Yale was kind of like the first um, to kind of extrapolate or to kind of transition ketamine from an anesthetic to a potential psychiatric treatment. But um while they were studying different models of schizophrenia, they were also investigating the impacts of ketamine's use on people with living with schizophrenia, and they had noticed that it had increased some of the psychotic symptoms that people were experiencing, um, but that it had improved some of the more kind of negative symptoms or some of the mood or cognitive symptoms. Um, and this is what kind of prompted the first randomized like placebo-controlled double-blind trial um, Something I think that's wild to me is that ketamine was FDA approved as a, and I'm sure this is similar for other kind of drug approval things, but the first randomized controlled trial for ketamine for depression was back in 2000. Um, it took until 2019 um, for the first form of ketamine to be like FDA approved um, to treat uh, depression. Um, so kind of continuing on this this story and this, uh, tri this um, trial in 2000, um, there were like less than 10 people, um, and they found that surprisingly, and to kind of maybe back up to set the stage on why ketamine was so novel or so different, was that a current kind of treatment paradigms for depression are like, excuse me, antidepressant, excuse me, oral antidepressant medications like SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or MAOIs, you know, monoamine oxidase inhibitors or TCAs, tricyclic antidepressants. And these medications, although sort of effective, um, often take, you know, four to six weeks to reach effect. They maybe, you know, produce a response or a less than 50% reduction symptoms in like 
30 to 50% of people. So there's still a lot of people not receiving relief. Um, and in this try in it, you know, taking four to six weeks to reach that type of, um, you know, effect. And in this ketamine trial in 2000, they saw that after like one dose of like intravenous administered ketamine that up to like 70% of people had seen a greater than 50% reduction in their symptoms. And like 30% of those people had like no longer had depressive symptoms after 24 hours. Like what a like drastic change um, to see like that this medication could like eliminate somebody's depression in 30, you know, or sorry, in 30% of people. Um, whereas then the placebo arm was like nine to 12% or something like that. Um, and, but kind of like what they had found was that this lasted only for like seven days was kind of like, you know, seven to 10 days. Um, and they found that repeatedly that like this kind of arc of this rapid response and then the kind of depression symptoms would kind of return to a baseline. Um, so the next kind of like follow-up study, again, wasn't until 2006. So there was this kind of like six year lag that like, you know, they had found this like wild finding and it just took like up to six years for the next published study, um, which was like a crossover study, including more participants. Um, but I'd say after that 2006 study was when more and more studies started to come out that were investigating like different things like how, what dose should we use? Um, and so for most of these studies, they use what's called a sub-anesthetic dose. Um, so they're not trying to put, you know, induce people into general anesthesia. Um, they study different routes of administration. So ketamine for the first probably like 10 years of its study was only administered um, intravenously. Um, so then they started to, which has, you know, intravenous has like a great, you know, it's a hundred percent like bioavailable, meaning that like a hundred percent of the medication is going into somebody's like bloodstream. Um, but it's not always super practical to have people hooked up to IV. So they started to investigate different um, like routes of administration, whether it was IM or intramuscular or oral through a tablet or sublingual, um, what else? There's like intranasal. And so they started to investigate things like that. Um, again, continuing to find that ketamine always had this kind of rapid onset effect that it was a lot more efficacious or a lot more effective than standard um, antidepressants. Um, but again, it followed that kind of seven today. People would need repeated infusions um, to maintain effect. Um, and then I would say maybe in the mid 2010s was when things started to change um, to give, you know, maybe for some like organic chemistry lovers, um, ketamine, like just straight up ketamine is what's called a racemic mixture, which means that it's made of two different enantiomers. And these enantiomers are mere images of each other. I know this is getting real, real organic chemistry <laughs> right here. Yeah. Um, but they had found that this S enantiomer called S-ketamine was more effective in producing anesthesia and reducing depression effects. And it didn't produce as many of these um, kind of like psychotic, hallucinatory, dissociative type of effects. And so they isolated that. Um, and then kind of thinking of how can we take this S-ketamine or take this, you know, more effective molecule and how can we increase access to care? How can we ensure that people across the country can receive this medication? How can we kind of reduce the cost of giving this medication and reduce the staff burden, et cetera? 
And so they had found that with the intranasal form and that they could achieve um, kind of similar effectiveness as the intravenous uh, form of esketamine and, or of ketamine, sorry. And so after like several clinical trials in 2019, esketamine, which is the generic name, its trade name is called Spravado, the intranasal form, uh, was FDA approved. Um, so it's kind of been in use since. Um, after that, I mean, there's still a ton of research coming out on ketamine and its use. Sorry, I should say it was FDA approved for treatment resistant depression. Um, that's often defined as people who failed at least like two to three different antidepressant trials. Um, and it was also FDA approved for depression with acute suicidal ideation, which I think is like a really like strong area for ketamine or something that like differentiates it. Um, you know, for example, if people come into the emergency department and they are experiencing depression and this is maybe if that's contributed to some of the acute suicidal ideation, you know, to be in the emergency room and say, hey, we can try a different SSRI or a different antidepressant that might take four to six weeks and this person's experiencing a really acute crisis. Um, and if we're able to, you know, give somebody an intranasal spray in within one day to help like have their depression severity or to like eliminate um, or to like, you know, have their symptoms be so low that they no longer meet the criteria for major depressive disorder, I think is really exciting to like help save lives and to help, you know, kind of reduce that severity of that crisis and get people um, connected to more kind of like care and resources and things like that. Um, I think I kind of like glossed over like some of the like, how does it work um, part and getting to like where we are today. Um, so to kind of continue on this really long monologue, I had mentioned that uh, ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist, antagonist meaning that it blocks the receptor. This NMDA receptor is involved in a lot of different kind of neuronal processes um, but do y'all here, I'll throw a question to y'all. I don't know if you're ready for this. Do you remember what LTP stands for with the NMDA receptor? Are you talking about, if I'm totally wrong, it's going to be so embarrassing. Um, long-term potentiation. There we go. Yeah. Long-term potentiation. Exactly. Um, so the NMDA receptor, you know, it's requires like glutamate or, you know, it requires like a glutamate binding and then that that like positive charge kicks out magnesium. Then when we lose that charge, like we can increase, you know, the positive voltage of the neuronal membrane, which can cause like depolarization and allow calcium to come. I'm like going too far. Anyway, um, once that NMDA receptor is activated, it releases a bunch of second messengers that can bring in a second type of receptor. Do you remember what that second type of receptor is? Darby, <laughs> I'm putting y'all. I'm putting y'all on the spot. I cannot recall. And That's it. Oh gosh, isn't it like AM? Yeah, I know. Yep. It's like AM. Oh gosh. Yeah, you you are you have the first two letters. Yep. Ampa. Yeah, the AMPA, yeah. the AMPA receptor. Um. So when the NMDA receptor is activated. So let's say, you know, you're learning something and your brain goes, oh, I learned like what type of receptor comes after the NMDA one. That activation will cause like more of those AMPA receptors to be recruited 
into the neuron. And this is what kind of helps that long-term potentiation, that long-term like neuronal connection forming. It helps strengthen connections between synapses. It helps form these kind of circuits. Um, so ketamine works through like, oh my goodness, y'all. It works through so many different like mechanisms. Uh, but one of the strongest ways that they found is that it's metabolite hydroxynorketamine. Well, one, it will like help when it blocks NMDA receptor, it will like recruit even more AMPA receptors and it will also um, directly stimulate those AMPA receptors. And once that those AMPA receptors are started, this is where I think I had mentioned previously, um, once those are stimulated, once we're starting that long-term potentiation, it will create or increase the amount of those kind of signaling molecules or those second messengers like mTOR to help increase more protein synthesis or synapse connections or BDNF, et cetera. Um, and they found that when they block the AMPA receptors and give somebody ketamine, that like the antidepressant effect kind of goes away, um, which is a kind of one way that we know ketamine helps kind of produce this antidepressant response. Um, their ketamine also like works through the opioid system. And so when people are taking a medication that blocks the opioid system, can y'all think of a medication that would do that? Um, oh, I don't know if you've gotten pharmacology yet. I'm sorry if I, this is too No, much. we, I mean, a little bit, not specifically, you know, I want to say like not specifically brain stuff, but to be honest, I did not pay enough attention in neuro. Um, what about like, like naloxone. Ooh, it's it sounds like naloxone, but it's people take it for like alcohol to reduce alcohol cravings. Oh, oh gosh, I've definitely heard of this. Isn't it like naltrexone or something like that? There we go, naltrexone. Yep, naltrexone is a mu opioid blocking medication, and if people are taking that, and we give somebody ketamine again, we don't see as much of an antidepressant response which goes to show that ketamine's like antidepressant properties are also kind of working in that way as well. Um, anyway, so there are a bunch of different, like I could, Ooh, here we go. One more while we're talking about neuro neuroanatomy. Um, so for the people listening, this is a like five week course taught by one of like the highest rated professors, Dr. Sipla shout out if you're listening. He is um, great, but he writes hard questions. Uh, yeah. It's a very challenging, <laughs> really intense, like five week deep dive into neuroscience and neuroanatomy, which is kind of like what we're talking about now. Um, but there was one structure that ketamine can, I mean, it acts throughout the brain, but one that it, like, especially axon was called the lateral habenula. Do y'all remember what the lateral habenula like does or what its kind of like main function is you know simple would be so disappointing the words sound familiar no i i fully recognize this word don't know <laughs> yeah yeah um so the lateral habenula is kind of like the anti-reward like portion of our brain it helps us like encode like negative experiences um it's oh, I remember this air, now. Yeah, yeah, it's thought of an air quotes as kind of like the depression center of the brain. Like it's really active or it's hyperactive in people with depression. I can help promote that kind of apathy, that anhedonia, that like lack of motivation, that lack of like reward and excitation. Um, and so ketamine and hydroxynorketamine, it's metabolite, both can like decrease 
the amount of activity in that lateral habenula, which is like another way. So if we're like decreasing the, de, you know, depression effect or the depression center in the brain that it can produce some of that like antidepressant uh, properties. But yeah, that's just like some of the ways that ketamine can, can work. Um, I think it's super exciting that it's being studied for a lot of other, we've been talking about depression a lot, um, but it's also been in use for things like pain and like chronic pain. Um, so we talked about like long-term potentiation and helping like promote new kind of like neural circuits and things like that. Um, so it can also like help prevent like something called like central sensitization. Do y'all remember what that is? I don't, I did not intend for this to be like a, <laughs> a Socratic, you know, kind of like question and answer session, but it might be helpful for listeners. Yes, central sensitization, I believe, is when we're down-regulating our responses to things because we have been stimulated for too long. Yeah, correct. Um, so I would say maybe like where it, incre it can create like a hyper response. Um, so if we are being like, I guess maybe it's both. It's both. Where if you like stimulated, if there's too much stimulus, we'll like down-regulate our receptors which will then like, if we get that stimulus again, like create like a hyper response. Uh, anyway, uh, ketamine can, and do you remember what part of the like spinal column brings in like pain sensations? Y'all are doing so good. It's the spinothalamic track. Yeah, where, where does it enter? Like <laughs> what part, dorsal or ventral? Gosh. Hmm. Oh gosh. I oh wait, so we have our I think it's you're it's hearing thinking. Ventral, I believe, yeah. Uh oh. No. Yep. I think it, it's the dorsal horn, like the dorsal root ganglion. Oh, it's like, like sensory and like pain, right? Correct. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. So sensory, yep, sensory and pain signals come into the body or come into like come in from your peripheral you know your limbs etc and then come to your dorsal horn of your spinal column and then like shoot up to your brain anyway uh ketamine uh when we block that nmda receptor we block kind of some of that like uh long-term potentiation etc it can help like dampen that um and it will help you know and like we talked about so if it can like dampen um some of that like excitatory you know like if and the nmda receptors involved in like glutamate excitation if we can dampen that uh, maybe we can help you know blunt some of those pain signals and like we talked about with ketamine being able to in the central nervous system like promote synaptogenesis and promote bdnf and like help form new neural circuits as well um it's ketamine is being studied to help you know with like acute pain chronic pain um, for other kind of mental health disorders like anxiety, bipolar disorder, um, et cetera. So yeah, I really have just kind of like rambled for a really long time, but that's kind of like ketamine story, like how it works. Um, I think some of the, like we talked about, you know, different other, or other mental health disorders. Um, it's also being studied like right now, there's a really big study going on for like at home um, like sublingual tablets. So right now the FDA approval for the intranasal spray, like has to be done in a clinic. It has to be like supervised people like can't drive afterwards, et cetera. 
Um, so now they're kind of invest again in kind of that increasing access to care. They're doing a study where they're giving like sublingual tablets for people at home um, to do it like on their own to see if that is like also um, effective or if they can be if it can be done safely. Um, there's also a bunch of studies going on in like ketamine assisted or psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So if we give somebody this medication, um, both kind of doing therapy before the session, during the session, after the session, um, can that augment or can that boost um, some of the effects of other therapies? Um, it's being studied as like an adjunct. Um, so can we, you know, it's and it's been shown to be effective. Like if people are taking normal, you know, doses of antidepressants, can we boost that effect with ketamine? Um, they're looking, continuing to investigate all the different ways that it is producing this like novel, like rapid onset effect. Um, but yeah, I think it's really starting to like, or as it was the first um, kind of psychedelic medication FDA approved, it really has helped kickstart a lot of other studies. Um, in different psychedelics. So there's like studies going on for like MDMA or ecstasy um, to help, you know, treat PTSD. Um, it also like helped kickstart um, kind of old stuff again with the like war on drugs and the Controlled Substance Act. There were a lot of these studies going on in the 1960s, but then got the kibosh uh, put on as these uh, substances were uh, criminalized. Um, but now a lot of these studies are like restarting again with like compounds like psilocybin, the compound of magic mushrooms to help treat things like depression and things like that. Um, so I think with its like FDA approval, it really has helped um, both like psychiatry, medicine, and I would say like just kind of lay people's like understandings of the like profound potential that these uh, substances can have. Um, I did have a quick follow-up. I think you, you touched on it briefly, but um, as far as, oh gosh, the helicopter is, <laughs> I bet you anything that's a, it's saving somebody's life. It's saving. Yeah. It's saving somebody's life. It's saving somebody's life. Um, yes. It's always very cool when, when I hear the helicopter, except when I'm recording zoom podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, so for like treatment, like let's say, um, a patient were to have like really treatment resistant depression and their provider decides that like ketamine is something they both want to try. Mm -hmm. How does that work? You said that has to be supervised and it's like an intranasal. So like, like how often are they going in and mm -hmm. you know, how, how inconvenient is it for a patient right because like if you get let's say like zoloft or surgery just like an ssri you just like go home with pills right and then you take one every day yep. which is like a very standard medication um, yep yeah no that's a great question um and i to maybe like make it maybe a little more robust like at least like at the university of iowa we have something called like the interventional psychiatry team and so these are people who this is like a team of providers who see people who, like you mentioned, may have like treatment resistant dis um, mental health conditions, people who failed or not. Fa I shouldn't say people who failed where like treatments have failed, right? Because people don't like fail treatments. It's like the medications that aren't working um, for them where they've tried several different medications and don't know what to do next. Um, ketamine is now on that list. Um, some of the other like available treatments are things like ECT or electroconvulsive therapy um, or TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, and now we have ketamine as well. So we have kind of like several different tools in our arsenal for treatment resistant depression, other than just kind of like continuing to try different like oral medications. 
Um, so there are some contraindications um, for ketamine use as well. Um, oftentimes they won't use this in somebody who has a psychotic disorder. So if people are experiencing, you know, things like hallucinations or delusions or things like that, because ketamine can have this kind of dissociative effect or can um, like promote hallucinations or things like that at high doses, or people are extremely sensitive to the medication, um, they often like won't be given that medication or, you know, ketamine may not be for them. Um, if people are pregnant, um, and we had mentioned this too, as people are, or as ketamine as a medication can like increase blood pressure, increase heart rate. It has a, what's called sympathomimetic or can like mimic the sympathetic nervous system. If people have really out of control, like heart disease or blood pressure, things like that, it might not be for them. If, you know, with the patient and provider, if they've decided that, um, ketamine is the kind of the next step, um, if people have insurance, um, again, we mentioned like S-ketamine, the intranasal spray is FDA approved, meaning insurance will cover it. Um, what that looks like is people come in, um, they get, you know, it has to, it's like self-administered. So people like spray it up themselves um, and they're monitored for at least kind of two hours to make sure that everything is like, okay, you know, they're attached to blood pressure cuffs and people kind of like checking in on them, et cetera. Um, just to make sure, you know, there's no issues. There have been like really rare um, instances of people's like blood pressure going out of control. Um, I believe there was a case of like one person who experienced a stroke um, because of that due to kind of like poor monitoring. So it is kind of, you know, important that these things are monitored. Um, and then people are told that they shouldn't like drive or operate like heavy machinery the rest of the day. Um, this is like a once weekly treatment, um, as kind of all the, like previous studies had showed there's that kind of rapid onset of effect and things kind of taper off after a week. Um, it starts off at like, it's, there's kind of like a standard dosing paradigm where it starts at 56 and then kind of subsequent doses are decided, you know, to either continue at 56 or if it's working, or it could be bumped up to 84. Um, the initial kind of like treatment window is for one to four weeks, um, and you can do it like once a week or twice a week. Um, and then like the subsequent weeks are kind of, we start to like taper it down and do like just once a week or once every other week um, or things like that. Um, and that's for treatment resistant depression. Um, if there are people are taking it for acute suicidal ideation, sometimes you can like up the dose or up the frequency as well. Um, as we'd mentioned, um, ketamine can also, or like intravenous ketamine, which is how the studies kind of started is not FDA approved, but there are ketamine clinics um, across the country. There are a couple people are in Iowa City. There's like, like corridor ketamine and like Midwest Ketafusion. Um, and as this is not FDA approved, it's all like out of pocket, like cash based. Um, so you can pay up to like four to five hundred dollars to receive a ketamine infusion. Um, something to be mindful of with these ketamine clinics is that they can be run by anesthesiologists or psychiatrists or even CRNAs or certified registered nurse anesthetist. Um, kind of like take that information as you will. I think kind of in the biased, you know, I'm a medical student, I'm going to be going into psychiatry. It's a really like psychoactive medication. And I think if we're managing conditions like depression, it should be managed by a psychiatrist or overseen by a psychiatrist. But if you, you know, if people are out here like looking for a treatment that, you know, there are, there are thousands of anecdotes of people who you know, ketamines like save their life where, you know, they had tried so many other things and this was like the one thing that changed it for them. Um, and so I guess if you have the funds to be able to do it, people can also try um, going to ketamine infusion clinics as well. 
Okay. Again, that's kind of given on like a once weekly kind of like similar. Yeah. Dose. Yeah, that's interesting because I think that does bring up like another sort of barrier, right? Because if you don't have someone to like drive you home or if you don't, I mean, a lot of people don't have two hours that they can stay in the hospital um, and, and you can't, it, you have to take it like at the hospital, you can't like take it home. So like there, yeah, that's, I can definitely see why um, all of the trials that you mentioned that are ongoing will mm -hmm. probably take it in hopefully um, directions that will make it accessible to, yep. to more patients snaps to that um, yeah <laughs> so that's all the questions i had um darby or nathan do you have anything else you'd like to add you know i can't think of too much hopefully you know with all of the more research being done on it and other medications that were kind of taken off the market we can hopefully see some better access coming from it yeah and maybe i you know i guess i'm a big proponent of this just to like throw the word to the why, you know, in medicine, we always have to like be cautious. Um, these are like really powerful psychoactive substances. They, um, if not, you know, taken, you know, in a monitored like setting, they can be dangerous. They're with any kind of psychedelic, the risk of things of having like bad trips or really like negative um, experiences. Um, so these are not just kind of like wonder drugs. They're not panaceas or magic bullets that will fix every problem um so like please if you're considering this um i would like talk to your doctor you know talk to your primary care doctors talk to your psychiatrists or mental health professionals um if you think that this is something um that may be of benefit for you um but like overall i think I, maybe not to sound like a broken record but i'm just like so excited that these like conversations are happening and that they're starting to get this like mainstream momentum you know whether it's you know, big podcast or articles in like New York Times, you know, on CBS News, 60 Minutes, things like that. I think this is really exciting to see that shift um, from something that was, you know, illegal, sent thousands and thousands of people to jail um, or prisons for decades that, you know, it's like shut down research for decades. Like, I just think this is like so exciting, especially for a field like psychiatry that just went from like has gone like decades without anything like revolutionary um, like this. So for me, I think this is like a really exciting time to like enter the field of psychiatry. And I hope people are excited by it too. Yeah, no, we'll definitely, um, we'll have to have you back sometime. You could tell us what your uh, experience like prescribing yeah. and working with ketamine is. Yeah, All right. Well, thank you everyone who tuned in today and thank you, Nathan, for being on the podcast. Um, we'll probably be back in two-ish weeks. School is ending, so we'll see how we'll see how the, the pattern of, of columns um, is in the summer. But thank you so much, Nathan. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And don't worry about all of that neuroanatomy stuff. Like it will come back to you as you continue to I, do your neurology rotations <laughs> and as you study for your board exam, it will come back to you all in there somewhere. Yep. Name it right now. LTP, baby. <laughs> <laughs>